At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Do you ever feel like the world is spinning out of control? Amidst the world's chaos and growing opposition to our faith, economic hardship, and overwhelming challenges, we can find inspiration from the story of Elijah in 1 Kings. Despite facing an angry king, severe drought, massive opposition, and depression, Elijah lived a powerful and impactful life for God. Join us for our series, Elijah, as we learn how the same God Elijah served can use us to live a life of impact for his kingdom. Well, it's good to be with you this morning. I'm glad that we're here. If you have your Bible, please open it up to 1 Kings 17. We are going into the Old Testament uh, in the next month. Uh, we're going to go back, as it were, into uh, some incredible stories of a life of faith and trust and, and perhaps some stories in the scriptures that you are not familiar with. I, don't, I was mentioning to our worship team this morning before we uh, began uh, services as we were praying, I've preached one sermon in my entire uh, ministry career here at Woodside in 1 Kings, just one. And that was the very first sermon I preached here uh, at Woodside on Solomon way back when. And so it's, it's encouraging and it's um, a joy, I think, for us to go back into the Old Testament scriptures and to see the God who lives, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever uh, before us this morning. So we're in 1 Kings 17. Now, I'm going to give you a little homework here in this series. There's going to be a couple sermons where we're going to deal with an entire chapter or a significant length of Scripture. And I'm not going to read that for us all in the service. I'm going to encourage you to go home maybe later today or sometime this week and read the entirety of the chapter that I'm preaching in. Uh, But we're going to cover 1 Kings 17, the whole chapter, this morning. And so I want to encourage you to, again, take some time and read it and uh, think about what God is saying here and what he's doing. But let's dive in this morning. We're going to look at this life of a man named Elijah. And I want to ask you the question, have you ever wanted a life of spiritual significance, maybe a life of spiritual power, a life of spiritual importance, you might say? Well, what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, I could think of some things that a life of spiritual significance may look like. Maybe you feel these things as well. Maybe you, you say, I want a life that when I pray, I know that God hears my prayers and I see him at work because he answers them. There, there's verifiable realities that God has heard me and that he answers my prayer. Or perhaps you say, I, I want to be able to open up the Bible and, and as I read Scripture, be illuminated by the text. I want to be able to, to see wonderful things and have moments of inspiration and revelation, as it were, and insight and go, God met with me. I heard God's voice as I, as I read the Bible. Perhaps for you, a life of spiritual significance has this, this reality underneath it to have a desire and a joy in your life, that there, and for there to be an absolute peace that no matter what goes on in your life, everything is okay. God's with you, and everything is fine and good, and it'll be all right. You want to be the kind of person that, having spiritual significance, is able to share the good things that God has done in your life, to, to be able to talk about Jesus and what he's done and, and share that with people who don't know him and in such a way that you, you are persuasive and even contagious and people, as they hear you talk about Jesus, they ask you questions about him and they say, that, that God that you serve, Jesus, the one you follow, I want to know him too. I want to walk with him. 
Perhaps you want the life of spiritual significance that, that looks at your sin and the things that bog you down and, and um, slow you up in your race of faith. And, and you see, as you confess your sin, that sin defeated. And, and the besetting sins of your life are, are conquered and you're victorious at every turn. That You really experience spiritual growth and, and passion in increasing measure and ability. You don't find the troubles of this world, whether they're high or low, getting you down. You're, you're unmoved, unshakable, dynamic, powerful, and fruitful in your spiritual significance. Now, maybe you think about that kind of life and you say, who wouldn't want that as a follower of Jesus? Like that, that kind of dynamic spiritual life is something that we would all desire and attain to. But you look at yourself and you go, I, I don't think I can get there. Like I don't have it within me to actually be a giant of the faith. I don't think I can be a, a, spe- a specific, particular, real big saint in the world. And I think that's one of the challenges that come to us when we read the Bible. When we run into accounts of spiritual giants, of, of men and women of faith who conquered and did great things, when we read Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, and we see these people, people like Abraham and Moses and Ruth and Esther and David, we read their life and we say, wow, that was incredible. They were tight with God. They had this close communion and relationship with him. But if I'm honest, that's not me. I'd love to have the spiritual life that they do, but I'm nowhere near that. I don't feel that from God. And and so we walk away a little discouraged. We, we live in spiritual mediocrity. Perhaps there's a spiritual depression that comes over our hearts. Of like that dynamic spiritual life is there, but, but I can't attain to it. It's too far gone for me. Well, this series, as we look into the life of one who we might call a giant of the faith, in the Old Testament, Elijah, we're going to see his life. Now, this man, he stood in an amazing contrast to the culture and the world around him. He stood as a prophet for God in one of the most significant shifts in Israel's culture and history. He stood up against the forces of evil in his day that were polluting and corrupting the nation away from God as they worshiped false gods and dove into deep spiritual immorality. Elijah's time frame was in the period of Uh, The divided kingdom. If you think about Israel's history, this is some years after King David and Solomon when when the kingdom is fractured and broken. And there's the northern kingdom in Israel and the southern kingdom in Judah. And Israel, the northern kingdom, is under the reign of a guy named Ahab. Uh, The writer of the book of Kings talks about Ahab in chapter 16. It introduces us to his reign and his uh, leadership of the kingdom of Israel, and it wasn't a good reign. In fact, the writer in 1 Kings 16.30 says, Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. This guy was a notoriously bad leader and and sinner. Uh, Furthermore, He is described as being one who did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. That's verse 33 of chapter 16. So you have this leader who who loves to flaunt immorality in, in the sight of the Lord, does more evil than all the other kings before him in the sight of God, and leads the nation away from worshiping and following the Lord, the God who lives. And God sent a guy named Elijah to him. Unless you think, oh great, here it is, another spiritual leader, another spiritual giant, another saint of old, who, whose life, if we look at it, might have some nice tips for me. 
And lest we say, I could never experience the spiritual strength and power he did, I want you to consider what the New Testament writer, James, says about Elijah and his life. James writes and says, Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. Did you catch that? Elijah was a regular guy, just a, just a normal human being. The same nature that you and I possess, the same inclinations, and the same highs and lows that you and I experience, Elijah experienced as well. And so I think that we should maybe pause in thinking about him as such a great spiritual giant and say, what can we learn from a man who had an ordinary life of faith, an ordinary spirituality, an ordinary trust in the Lord, and see what God did in and through him? I want us to see in this series as we walk through 1 Kings 17 through 19, these three chapters, what I call the supernaturally ordinary life of faith that Elijah had. And I want you to see his life so that you will be encouraged and empowered that you too can live for Christ in that same way. Just as just look at our world today. Just as our world and culture is full of moral decay and a dramatic shift, that was the times that Elijah was living in. Just as our times are uncertain and they brim with feelings of abandonment and despair, those were Elijah's times. Just as true faith in the Lord disappears from our communities, so it was in Elijah's day as well. But the God who is the God of Elijah is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Our God has not changed. And these things are written for our instruction. We get a view in on Elijah's life, a man who, as the scripture says, was a man just like you and me, with a nature just like ours, so that we can be encouraged to walk in faith just as he did. So we're going to meet Elijah this morning, and we're going to hear a little bit about the beginning of his ministry and what God called him to do. We're going to be called to an ordinary supernatural faith. In fact, that's what I want to help us see today. What does it look like to live by faith? If I'm suggesting to us that we can have the same supernatural, ordinary faith that Elijah did, I want us to evaluate and to know, what does that faith truly look like? What does that really mean for you and I? So chapter 17 here raises the question, what does a life of faith look like? Maybe the way to ask the question is, what are the components of a life of faith that can be embraced in our own lives so that we can have a supernatural, ordinary faith in the God who lives? Let me show us these two components of a life of faith. They're really simple. First of all, the, compo- the first component is that of unconditional obedience. A life of faith is a life of unconditional obedience. Now, now Elijah shows us this first component of a life of faith by the way that he was obedient to the Word of God. You'll hear this over and over throughout this chapter about the Word of God coming to Elijah. The Word of God, the Word of God. There it is. God speaks And he says things to Elijah, and Elijah has an opportunity to obey and respond or to to ignore and to walk away. The word of God is presented to people in Elijah's Elijah's life, Ahab, uh, this widow that we'll meet in just a moment, and others. And they have an opportunity to believe God and respond in faith or to walk away. Here's Elijah, and let me just give you a little insight on who he is so that you can put yourself in his shoes for just a moment. Chapter 17, verse 1 introduces us to him. It says, now Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead. That's our introduction to him. Who is this guy? Where is Tishbe? What does it mean to be a Tishbite? We're living in Galilee, or Gilead, I'm sorry. (laughs) We don't know much about any of these places. All that to say, Elijah was really ordinary. He didn't come from a significant place. 
He's not Elijah from Jerusalem, the strong and mighty prophet, or, or Elijah, the priest, a clan of Levite. He's just this guy from Tishbite in Gilead. That's a, that's a community on the east side of the Jordan River. It's on the other side of the river, if you will. Maybe in our parlance, we'd say it's on the other side of the railroad tracks. It's not a big community. It's actually a relatively rural area. Didn't come from a significant place or even a significant spiritual family. Elijah's just an ordinary man. Kind of out, live out of the way, in a far country, farm country, if you will. And yet God chooses him and gives him a message to take to the most powerful person in the kingdom at that time. He's sent with a message from God to the king, Ahab. This is what happens. He goes to the king and he says to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now that, friends, is not just a statement about the weather, okay? Elijah's not just a meteorologist saying, no rain for a few years, unless I say so. He's making a religious proclamation. He's making a religious statement. What Elijah is doing, what God has sent him to do before Ahab, is to confront Ahab and to confront Ahab's God, Baal. Now Ahab was one who introduced the worship of Baal into the people of God in Israel, Chapter 16 tells us that he took for his wife Jezebel, and they went and served Baal and worshipped him, and they erected altars for Baal and made Asherah poles and invited Israel in to worship Baal, this, this god who was called the storm god. Now, they believed, it was supposed in Canaanite religion, that Baal, the storm god, was one who brought the rains and the wind to make everything fertile and green. Baal was the one who made you prosperous, and so if you pleased Baal, lots of rain would come, your crops would grow, you'd be financially successful and be doing well. But if you didn't please Baal, he would cause everything to dry up, there would be no rain, no water, no prosperity, and you would have to do things, certain acts, certain immoral acts, to please Baal and to get his favor back. What Elijah does when he comes to Ahab is he looks Ahab in the eye and he says, My God lives, Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel lives. And because he lives, I'm just going to tell you this God that you worship, he's nothing. Your God, Ahab, Baal, is a worthless fake. He's a dead no God with no power and I'm going to prove it to you. Because at my word, at God's word, the rains are going to come. And at my word, God's word, the rains are going to stop. And it's going to be irrefutable who lives. It's not your dumb God, Baal. Now, this is, this is a profound statement. This is a, a challenging statement. Put yourself in his shoes for just a moment. You're, not, you're an ordinary person confronting the king, saying his power, his religion, his thing is completely irrelevant and worthless. Do you think you're going to be successful with that? Like, do you think you'll walk away and Ahab pat you on the back and says, hey, we're going to be friends. This is going to be wonderful. Absolutely not. He's immediately in the crosshairs for trouble, merely by proclaiming God's word. So now we should ask the question, well, what's God going to do with Elijah? He's already on the outs. He, he's a political opponent, a religious opponent of the king, of his wife, of even the people of Israel at that moment, it seems. And here's again where God shows up. Now, I want you to see God's care and his provision for his people. This is the God that we worship. Again, verse 2, the word of the Lord came to him. 
God speaks and he directs Elijah. And he says to Elijah, depart from here, turn eastward, hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan, and you shall drink from the brook. And I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. Now think about that. That's really unusual, right? You just come and you tell your political opponent, your God is nothing. He's nobody. And then you're like, well, now where do I go? He's coming after me. And God says, oh, hey, go hide by this little river near where you grew up. I'll provide for you there. I'll send birds to feed you. That's really strange, right? The opportunity is there for Elijah to trust God, to believe his word, or to say, that's bonkers, and I think I need to figure this out on my own. And there's where Elijah's faith is shown. Verse 5, he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook, and the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. God is faithful to his word. What he says, he will accomplish and he will do. And that's why we can live by faith, because our God is trustworthy. When he says it, when he speaks, it is true. It will happen. It's, it's, it's weird. It's amazing. What does it mean that God provides by ravens? We don't know, except for the fact that God provides. He cares. Just as the way God provided for Israel in their wilderness wanderings, by sending manna from heaven and meat, quail for them. He provides to Elijah here in the specifics, this lone prophet, just by sending these ravens with food, with meat and bread, right there by a brook, taking care of him when he had to be a political exile. You can trust God's word. You can obey God's word. Here's another example of this. This is the second story in this passage. We read on a little bit further, verse 7 says, after a while the brook dried up. That's an obvious thing. I think that's kind of like assumed because there's a big drought. Elijah said, there will be no rain until God says so. And there's no rain. Many years. The brook dries up. Elijah's lacking water, lacking supply. What happens? Again, God cares for his people. Verse 8, the word of the Lord came to him. God is leading Elijah. And he is sending him. So he says this time to him, Arise, go to this city which belongs in Sidon, and dwell there. Now that itself is a crazy thing. This, this city, Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, that is not a safe place for a Jewish prophet. Why? Because that's where Jezebel is from. That's her hometown. That is the Canaanite center of Baal worship and Baal religion. So now God is saying to Elijah, hey, I'm going to provide for you and protect you in the middle, in the very core of the most hostile place where people don't believe me, they worship Baal, and go, go right there, like hang out there. He says, behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. Again, another opportunity for Elijah to go, why don't I go to Jerusalem? I mean, those people worship you, kind of. Like, we, I'd be much safer there. Elijah doesn't pick his own battles or pick his own direction here. He gets the word of God. It seems counterintuitive. It seems completely upside down. And the scripture says, he arose and he went. He hears God's word and he follows God's word. He trusts God's word and he goes. He goes to the city and sure enough, there's a widow gathering sticks and so he knows to ask, okay, this widow is the one God has provided to care for me. And so we ask her, bring me a little water that I may drink. She's like, okay. She goes to get the water and he calls back to her and says, whoa, 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 before you go, 
How about some food too? A little morsel of bread, that'd be great. And this is where the conflict comes in. This pagan widow in the midst of a pagan city has been the means by which God is going to provide for his prophet, but he's also calling this woman to faith herself. She's in a desperate situation. She recognizes and says, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked. In fact, all I have is a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. She's like, I can make one last loaf, one one last piece of bread for us, and I'm going to go make it and prepare it for myself and my son, and we're going to eat it, and we're going to die. This is the very end. Elijah here is sent by God to a place that doesn't believe God, that doesn't trust God. He's following the word of God, and God is using him in the midst of that city in that moment to produce faith in the God who lives. Elijah is a missionary here, sent by God to tell people who are far from God about his goodness, about his grace. And so Elijah says to her, don't fear, go and do as you said, but again... Make the cake for me first and bring it to me. And then afterward, make something for yourself. Because why? God has spoken. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. Now here's an opportunity for faith or for disobedience. What does the widow do? She believes. She trusts the God who lives She went and did as Elijah said. She believed God even when it seemed confusing, counterintuitive, and God provided. She and he and her household ate for many days. And what God had said, the jar jar of flour will not be spent, the jug will not become empty, it happened according to the word of the Lord. Now, this is amazing. The bedrock reality about God here is that we can always trust his word. That's what faith is, hearing God's word, believing God's word, and obeying God's word. God's integrity and faithfulness are fully reliable in what he says. When God speaks, we should listen, we should believe, and we should obey. If we say we have faith, then that faith will believe in God's word and act on it in unconditional obedience to his word. Now, I know the hesitation you might have right here. You might pause and say, wait, wait, wait. I mean, this is, this is Elijah, like, The prophet Elijah. I'm not him. God hasn't spoken to me in audible ways and said, go do this, go do that. Here it is. I don't have those straight up clear directions like Elijah did. And I would challenge you on that. I would encourage you and say, oh, yes, God has spoken to you clearly. When we think about a life of faith and spiritual significance, we often look for power and miracles that are beyond the ordinary, that are extreme. We want the sensational But friends, God has spoken more clearly to you about your life, how to live, what to do, than he has spoken to Elijah. How do I know that to be true? Because you have God's word, the scriptures, containing everything you need to know about life and godliness. The word of God is a place that we learn who God is, how to be saved, how to live as God's children. Everything for life and for godliness has been given to us in Christ Jesus, the Word of God, who has spoken the Word to us to know and to follow. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, all Scripture is breathed out by God. All, every word here is spoken by God and it is profitable or useful 
for our lives, for teaching, reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be complete, lacking nothing, equipped for every good work. Friends, nothing is lacking for you from God's clear, direct, complete revelation of himself in Christ through the Bible. Peter says in 2 Peter 1, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, which you would do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. His word is clear. So the real question, I think, is are we walking in obedience to his word? When we hear God's word, which is clear and compelling and true, are we obeying God's word? The first command that Jesus gives us is to repent and believe the gospel. We just think about Jesus' word. He says, repent and believe, and that's, that's where the life of faith must start. The good news is that Jesus has come and lived in unconditional obedience to his Father on our behalf. That Jesus suffered in our place and died for our sins and was raised to life again on the third day. That's where you and I start the life of faith, repenting and believing the good news. And from there, we're called to daily conform our lives to, to follow Jesus in obedience to what he has said. I think the problem that we have many times with faith isn't a matter of not knowing what to do. It's that we don't want to obey. We want freedom to do whatever we want. We live in a culture and a world that, that encourages us to choose our own adventure. And so we don't want to be told what to do, where to go, how it is. We want the autonomy to say, I will pick my life. We don't want to be subject to God's ways and God's laws. So we listen to the voice of the devil instead who questions everything God says. I mean, do you remember the very first thing that Satan says in the Bible in Genesis 1? Did God really say that? He's still asking us that question. Did God really say that? Oh, no, no, no. Friends, he, you don't need to believe that. Deny that. That's Satan's strategy to get us to doubt and deny the very clear thing that God has said. And every time we do, we don't live in a life of faith. We live in a life believing lies. But a life of faith says, says this, Psalm 18, verse 30. This God, the God who lives, his way is perfect the word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Friends, the ordinary life, the ordinary supernatural life of faith is one of unconditional obedience. When you hear God's word, do you believe it? And are you obeying it? It's a life of obedience to him. But it's also a life, and here's the second component, it's a life of dependence, a life of complete dependence. Elijah shows us what his name means. The name Elijah means the Lord is God, Yahweh is God. And, and that's how Elijah's life works itself out. If you want the interpretive key for the entirety of 1 Kings 17 through 19, it's just Elijah living saying the Lord is God. He's the one who's true. He's the one who lives. His faith is shown in his dependence on the Lord. Now, these stories here show us he's living in dependence everywhere. He has to depend on the Lord to provide for him and protect him in the midst of being run out into the wilderness. He has to depend on the Lord to provide for him food and water from ravens, meat there. 
He has to depend on the Lord to lead him and provide him, even in the midst of a pagan city, a hostile community, through this widow. But what does it look like to depend on the Lord when everything is gone and depleted? Is there a way for us to live in faith even when death comes? That's what the last part of this chapter answers. It's a life of dependence on the Lord when it seems like there's no hope, when death is at the doorstep. Verse 17 tells us that sometimes later in Elijah's life, the son of this woman, this widow that he's been cared for and provided by, she becomes ill. After, the son of, after this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. The illness goes deep and the boy dies. Maybe even in his mother's arms. And she is broken. She's lost her husband, now her son. And her perspective on all of this is God is judging her. God is against her. She says to Elijah, Why have you against, what have you against me, O man of God? You've come to me to bring my, son to, my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. I, I think in just her mind, she's saying, listen, if this man of God, if this prophet hadn't shown up here, the spotlight of God wouldn't have been on my household, my family. God wouldn't have seen my sin, and he wouldn't have judged me because of my sin and killed my son. That's just how she's operating in her, in her heart and in her mind. Elijah wants her to see truth. He wants her to know the God who lives. And so he, in his compassion and in his heart, he, he looks to the woman and he says, give me your son, I'm going to take him. And so he, he takes the son from her arms, carries the boy up to the upper chamber where he lodged, laid him on his own bed, and he goes to God completely dependent. He cries out to God. He asked God the question, why have, why have you done this? Have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? He's just saying, God, you're a God of mercy and grace and compassion. And, and yet, for my sake, have you brought calamity on this house? Why have you done this? It's okay to ask God these questions. But he lives in dependence on God. He is trusting and obeying God. And so verse 21 says, he stretched out himself upon the child three times, and he cried to the Lord. We don't know why he stretched himself out on the child. This isn't a normative practice for us today. Maybe it's just a symbol or a posture of dependence and prayer saying, God, be near here. We don't know. But the important thing is, and the thing that we should practice is his prayer. He cried out to the Lord. A simple prayer, and yet a passionate prayer. Oh, Lord, my God, let this child's life come in to him again. That's just what he prays three times over. He implores God, the God who lives, bring life to the boy who is now dead. This is faith. Just dependence on God, trusting God, looking to God. Elijah knows he can't raise the boy to life again on his own power. He can't put life back into this body. But God, the God who lives... Not Baal, he can. Now, how does God respond? Verse 22. The Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. There it is. That's just a profound thing. God listens to Elijah. And life came back into the child, and he revived. God raised this dead boy to life again. Now, now I don't want you to miss this or think here, well, it's obvious because Elijah is more spiritual than anybody else. Elijah maybe had some sort of magical incantation. He knew the right way to pray. Elijah was more dialed in spiritually. 
No, God listened to Elijah because God's purposes were to raise this boy. He listened to Elijah's prayer because he was ready to act to show his glory. Remember, Elijah is a man with a nature just like you and me. He's just like us. He doesn't have any fancy ace card up his sleeve with God. He just has dependence, powerlessness, inability. My friend Jim, uh, one of our campus pastors, and I were having dinner a couple weeks ago, and we were sharing about our lives and things going on in our churches and our ministry. And, And Jim just said something that was profound to me that stuck in my head from one of his counselors. He said, the currency of the kingdom of God is inability and dependence. That's faith. That's the currency that God operates in. Us saying, we don't have it. We're we're completely unable and and utterly dependent on you, God. This this teaching in this chapter here isn't to say that if if you have the right amount of faith, then God will do miraculous things in you. This teaching is to point us to be dependent people before a God who is holy and powerful. God responds to the dependent the humble, the lowly, the weak, the needy. True faith isn't about getting strong and calculating all the angles and making spiritual contingency plans in order to shape out a life that we want of power and influence. True true faith is a life that comes to God empty-handed, or as Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, open-handed, and says, God, you're the God who lives. Do something in my dry, ordinary life dead life. God hears that prayer of faith. You know why God raised this boy? To show his power, to show his glory, to show in the midst of a pagan city that believed that Baal was the one who gives life. No, he, God, is, Yahweh God, is the one who gives life. He did this to produce a testimony to himself, so much so that as Elijah took the child to the mother And said, see your son lives. She could say, this is verse 24. Now I know that you are a man of God. And that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. God's word is true. God is the one who lives. That's God's work in our lives today. That's what faith looks like. Trusting God, depending on him. So that everyone will see our God Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the one who lives. It's through our faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was slain and raised again to life on the third day, that God takes dead people, men and women like you and me, and raises us to life again by his Holy Spirit. He is the God who lives, who gives life to everyone who is dead in their trespasses and sins when they come to him and trust him by faith. Now here's where this matters for us. I don't think we can say we're living by faith in God and we're trusting God if you and I are hedging our bets spiritually and trying to maintain control of our lives. We can't say that we're depending on God, that we're trusting Him if we're not surrendering ourselves to Him, if we're not yielding our lives to Him, if we're not yielding our our gifts, our talents, our wealth, our reputation, our ambitions, our dreams, if we're not yielding ourselves completely to Him, I don't believe we're walking by faith. We're trying to do it in our own power, in our own cleverness, in our own strength. And that's not faith, friends. That's where spiritual significance is lacking. It's not about a matter of us growing and being strong in our own strength, in our own power, in our own significance. 
The life of faith is about yielding and humbling ourselves, humbling our lives to the God who lives, who raised his own son from the grave. To put it simply, a life of faith is a life trusting God and taking him at his word. It's a simple thing, and yet a very deep and profound thing. It's where we start. A life of spiritual significance, the life that Elijah had, can be yours. But it's a life of faith, trusting God, taking Him at His word. Do you have that faith, friends? Do you believe the God who lives? Through faith, others will see Him. If you want that life of spiritual impact, it's a matter of yielding, surrendering yourself to Him, and trusting Him in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we're tempted to believe that it's the big and the powerful and the strong that matter in this world, and that for us to have spiritual significance, we have to have lots of strength and ability and influence. But Lord, we thank You that You show us and You call us to be people of dependence and faith, obedience to you. Lord, we're not earning anything from you, but it's because of what Christ has done that we can walk in faith. Jesus is the one who has been strong for us who are weak. He is the one who has conquered and been victorious so that we might come with empty hands, broken hearts, in need, and you meet us and answer our prayers. Lord, give us and supply us and strengthen us with faith more and more that we would walk with you and depend on you and that we would live ordinary, supernatural lives of faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself today.